Our text this morning is Romans 3.31. To catch the context, I'm going to read verses 27 through 31. Where then is the boasting? It has been excluded. By what law of works? Never, but by a law of faith. For we consider a man to be justified by faith without works of the law. Or is God of Jews only and not of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since God is one who will justify someone circumcised by faith and someone uncircumcised through faith. Therefore, do we abolish the law through faith? May it never be. Rather, we establish the law. Now let's pray and ask God's blessing on the ministry of his word. Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for the privilege of studying it together today. We pray for your blessing upon us as we open up the text that your great name would be glorified, that sinners would be saved, and saints edify. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And this is our last exposition in the book of Romans for quite a while. And I'm going to complete this morning, God willing, section on the very heart of God's method of making sinners right with himself. Justification by faith. And we looked at the identity of God's method, that it is the virtue of Christ accomplished in his life history and applied, given as a free gift to everyone who believes by means of faith. So that sinners are made right with God on the ground of Christ alone, because of grace alone, by means of faith alone. And then we considered that it is absolutely right for God to do this. And when God does this, he does it justly. He doesn't just throw justice out the door. And how is it that he does this in a righteous and just manner? It is through propitiation, through sending Christ as the pacification. That's what propitiation means. It means to pacify wrath. He sends Christ to pacify his own wrath in order to be just when he justifies sinners. And then in verses 27 to 31, he opens up three profound implications of God's way of making sinners right with himself. First of all, it produces humility. Humility in the way we look at ourselves, in the way we look at sinners, and in the way we look at saints. Secondly, it produces integration, gospel integration of people from all ethnicities who believe in the Lord Jesus 
in the one society and family of God. So it not only produces humility and promotes integration. Now that brings us to what it does this morning. Not only produces humility, verse 27 and 28, and promotes integration, verse 29 and 30, but look what else it does. He asks a question, do we therefore abolish the law through faith? May it never be. Rather, we establish a law. It also perpetuates God's moral code, the Decalogue. Produces humility. Promotes integration. Perpetuates the Decalogue. Humility, integration, and the Ten Commandments. Those are the implications of God's way of justifying sinners. Now, this morning, I simply have an introduction. You had that already. An exposition and an application. The introduction is simply this. Justification on the grounds of Christ alone, by means of faith alone, because of grace alone perpetuates God's moral law. That's what this text says. I want to expound it and then I want to apply it. So, by way of exposition, how do we expound this? He asks a question. Do we abolish, annul, repeal the law by faith? Question. Answer. May it never be. Rather, we establish the law. Now listen to the various translations of this. The American Standard. Do we then make of none effect the law through faith? God forbid. No. We establish the law. King James. Do we then make the law void through faith? God forbid. No. We establish the law. Young's literal translation. Do we then make the law useless through faith? NIV. Do we then nullify the law? RSV. Do we then overthrow the law? They couldn't agree on how to translate it. But they got the same idea. The Greek basically means to nullify or abolish or cancel or destroy. So do we essentially, does God's method of justification by faith, does that repeal, make void, nullify, do away with the Ten Commandments? The answer is absolutely not. Rather, it establishes the Ten Commandments. It establishes, it upholds, it perpetuates the Ten Commandments. So, 
Maybe you remember all the way back to the 3rd of July. Your memories go back that far. What's that? Ha! She says her memory doesn't go back that far, but her notes go back that far. Very good. Very good. You know what? I'm the same way. My memory doesn't go back that far either, but my notes do as well. Okay? So you don't have to remember what happened on July 3rd, but let me tell you. What happened on July 3rd was we expounded Romans 3, 20, and 21. Romans 3, 20, and 21. What's that say? You know what that says? What? Uh, it does, but I, I'm sorry I misquoted. I meant 19 and 20. <laughs> now, 19. Now, we know that what things soever the law says, it says to those that are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be brought under the judgment of God. Because by the works of the law will no flesh be justified in his sight because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You remember we did that? Your notes do. Okay. You remember what we did else when we did that? Sunday school that day, because I didn't want to have to do it in the sermon. I went through three primary uses of the Greek word translated law in Romans 3, 19 and 20. And the three primary uses, do your notes show what they were? Script, oh, they do. Scripture, that's right, the book of the law and the Ten Commandments, right? Okay. Well, 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 well. So, the, pri the prime suspects for what law means here, it could refer to scripture or the book of the law or the Ten Commandments. Now, in my judgment, and this is my exposition, the only one of those three that fits both the question and the answer of verse 31 is the Ten Commandments. The only one that fits the question and the answer is the Ten Commandments. Are you, you following this? Okay. Scripture doesn't fit the question. And the book of the law doesn't fit the answer. Do we then repeal the scripture by faith? No. We establish the scripture. Well, why would you be asking whether scripture is repealed by faith? There's no reason to ask that question. Do we then repeal the book of the law by faith? No, no, no. We establish the book of the law. That doesn't fit the answer. The, the one that fits both the question and answer is, do we repeal the Ten Commandments by faith? No. We establish the Ten Commandments. Why does it fit the question? It fits the question because he says, apart from the law, God's righteousness stands manifest. He doesn't mean apart from the scripture. Because he says it's witnessed by the law, scripture, 
the Pentateuch and the prophets. It's witnessed by the, the, the law and the prophets. The, 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 the Old Testament scripture witnesses God's righteousness, but it's apart from the Ten Commandments. It's apart from our responsibility to keep the Ten Commandments. We're not right with God by keeping the Ten Commandments. That's not how you get justified. You don't get justified by doing your duty to God. Nobody's justified that way. Because through the Ten Commandments comes the knowledge of sin. And we, you remember we saw that it has, the law has to have the same meaning in verse 19 and verse 20. And the only meaning, one of the three major meanings that fits all of those constraints of 19 and 20 is the Ten Commandments. Because by the works that the Ten Commandments requires, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Because through the Ten Commandments is the knowledge of sin. And the Ten Commandments are binding on all men in every nation, everywhere, and every generation. Why is that? Because as we saw from Romans chapter 2, the Ten Commandments is the voice of conscience. Clarified, codified, purified, amplified, like that boombox. God's boombox from Mount Sinai. Declaring the Ten Commandments. His moral law. Binding on all men in all ages. Now it makes sense that he would say, well then do we make that, because we're justified not by keeping the law, like he says in uh, you know, verse 28, we consider a man to be justified by faith without the works of the law. Without obedience to God's moral law, a man is justified by faith. Well, what then? Do we repeal God's moral law by faith? Do we repeal the Ten Commandments by faith? Absolutely not. Rather, we establish the Ten Commandments by faith. And God's way of justifying sinners on the ground of Christ alone, by means of faith alone, because of grace alone, doesn't repeal, undermine, abolish, do away with, destroy, invalidate God's moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments. To the contrary, it establishes, perpetuates the jurisdiction and relevance of the Ten Commandments to all human beings everywhere on earth in every generation. That's my exposition. You see that? That's what it says. Do we then abolish, annul, repeal the Ten Commandments? Because we believe in justification by faith? Absolutely not. May it never be. Rather, we perpetuate the Ten Commandments. Now, that's the little introduction. Somewhat brief exposition. What about the application? So what? So, if this is true, so what? This means that the Ten Commandments, number one, has a perpetual role in evangelism, and number two, a perpetual role in Christian living, a perpetual role in sanctification. First of all, it has a perpetual role 
in evangelism, the conviction of sin. We know that what things soever the Decalogue says, it says to them that are under the Decalogue, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be brought under the judgment of God because by the works of the Decalogue shall no flesh be justified in his sight because through the Decalogue is the knowledge of sin. It is the voice of conscience. For whenever nations, Romans 2.14, that don't have the law, do by nature the things of the law, though they don't have the law, they are the law for themselves who display the work that the law does, written in their hearts, their conscience giving corroborating testimony, and their thoughts among one another, either bringing charges or offering self-defense. The law, the Ten Commandments, defines right and wrong. It obliges you to do right and forbids you to do wrong. It commends you when you do right, and it condemns you when you do wrong. This is exactly what the conscience does. The conscience of every human being defines right and wrong. It obliges doing right and forbids doing wrong. And it excuses you when you think you've done right, and it condemns you when you think you've done wrong. Nobody has to tell you to do that. Every human being has a conscience, and every human being does it. But in the state of sin, even their mind and their conscience are defiled. And they call evil good, and they call good evil. And the conscience is all twisted around by sin. It allows what it should never allow, and it condemns what it shouldn't condemn. It condemns the innocent and sets the guilty free. Our society is filled with twisted conscience that calls evil good and good evil. What do the Ten Commandments do? The Ten Commandments are that voice of conscience made clear and loud and pure from sin. They say what conscience should say, what before the fall it did say. They call good good and evil evil. And our consciences ought to be conformed to God's moral law. And if there's something in our conscience that contradicts God's moral law revealed on Mount Sinai, then something's wrong with our conscience. Right? The seventh commandment, in which people have twisted the whole idea of what marriage is today. They have the idea that it's all right for young men and young women to live together before they're married in order to find out whether they're compatible sexually. That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. That's a twisted conscience. That's a, a conscience twisted by sin. That's calling evil good and good evil. And many such things are done. How do you regulate conscience? You regulate conscience according to the testimony of God's moral law. In every single area that the moral law of God addresses. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And the law of God not only addresses outward behavior, but the whole 
the, the secret or genius of the law is that it addresses not only outward behavior through the body, it addresses the heart. And this is what brought the proud Pharisee, the Apostle Paul, to conviction of sin. He said in Romans 7, 7 and 12, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. How be it? I did not know sin except through the law because I would not have known covenant, coveting unless the law had said, you shall not covet. He's talking about the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. I wouldn't have known coveting unless the Decalogue said, you shall not covet. It was the Decalogue, and in particular the Tenth Commandment, that brought that Pharisee to conviction of sin. Outwardly, he was, quote, as he said, blameless, externally blameless, but inwardly filled with coveting. And that Tenth Commandment opens up the whole panorama of what the law says and requires because the Tenth Commandment says, you, not, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not covet your neighbor's house. So coveting can be either sexual coveting or it can be materialistic coveting. Either way. And it, coveting has to do with sinful desires in your heart. Coveting is not something that's outward and external. It's something that's inward and internal. And the law of God in all of its commandments addresses not just outward behavior, but inward disposition. The thoughts, feelings, intentions, and purposes of the heart. Jesus basically makes the same kind of application when he spoke the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you've heard it was said, don't commit murder, but I say to you, and I'm paraphrasing, that if your hearts are filled with a murderous spirit, you're in the same danger of the judgment of God. And you heard it was said, don't commit adultery. But I'm telling you that if someone looks at a woman to lust after her, he has committed adultery already with her in his heart. So he's talking about lust of the eyes. Where does lust in the eyes start with coveting in the heart? Something that you're not supposed to have that doesn't belong to you. You don't have to actually go and commit physical fornication in order to break the seventh commandment. You can either have lust in your eyes or coveting of a sexual nature in your heart. And so it is of the law of God. It's not just the seventh commandment about adultery or the Eighth Commandment about stealing, but all of the commandments have reference to the heart. Inward disposition, the way you think, the way you feel. And this is what brought the Apostle Paul to conviction of sin. The law of God in its scope refers not only to outward behavior, but inward attitude. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It shows people all over the world that they're hell-deserving sinners. And why does the Apostle Paul present this to people? 
because it points everyone to their need of Christ. And why does justification by faith establish the Decalogue as God's abiding moral code for everyone? Because justification by faith on the ground of Christ is completely and totally compatible with the law showing people how much they need Christ by showing them their own sin and bringing sinners to conviction of sin. Sin in your heart, sin in your eyes, sin in your words, sin in your outward behavior. Whether your sin is in your heart, whether it's coveting, or whether it's sin in the words and sin in the eyes that Jesus talked about, or sin in the outward behavior, the law brings us to the knowledge and conviction of sin. It shows us our need of Christ. For by the works of the law will no flesh be justified in his sight. Justification on the ground of Christ alone. Because of grace alone. By means of faith alone. Establishes and perpetuates. The Decalogue. God's moral law. In evangelism. As the means of bringing sinners. To see their need of Christ. You don't get saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. You don't get right with God by keeping the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments shows you that you can't get right with God by your own works. Shows you that you're a hell-deserving sinner. That's why it's totally compatible with justification by faith. We don't throw out the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments have a perpetual role in evangelism, in pointing sinners to their need of Christ. So do we nullify and repeal the law by means of faith? Absolutely not. Rather, we perpetuate and establish the law as God's means of showing sinners how much they need Jesus. Okay? My second and final application is this. Not only does the method, God's method of making sinners right with himself, justification by faith, establish the perpetual role of the Ten Commandments in evangelism as showing people why they need Christ. They also establish the perpetual role of the Ten Commandments in the Christian life and sanctification. Gospel obedience. And here is something that to me is absolutely beautiful. You notice the New Covenant. It doesn't say that he repeals the Decalogue. But if you look at what the New Covenant is, this is the beauty of it. And I established this perpetual role of the Ten Commandments in evangelism by looking backwards. So also establish the perpetual role of the Ten Commandments in sanctification by looking backwards at what God says about the Old Covenant. In Jeremiah 31, I'm going to read you a couple of passages. The first is Jeremiah 31, 33. But this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it 
on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they'll be my people. Now that's a new covenant. The days come that I'll make a new covenant. And what is the new covenant? There are three promises in that passage. First is, I'll write my law on their hearts. I was not talking about the book of the law, because if he's talking about the book of the law, then he's writing the book of the law in the hearts of all the Gentiles, and that's not true. It says the house of Israel, yes, it says the house of Israel, but there's a whole story, maybe a whole sermon about what it means by the house of Israel under the new covenant. This God's this is Christian Israel under the new covenant that it's talking about. And Christian Israel is formed through Jesus coming and reforming God's people and breaking off the unbelievers from Hebrew Israel and then making the new covenant with that remnant according to the election of grace of Hebrew Israel and then grafting Gentiles into new covenant Israel so that Hebrew Messianic Israel becomes Christian Israel. And it's with them that the new covenant is made. So it's not talking about the book of the law. It's talking about the Ten Commandments. And he writes, instead of having, like under the old covenant, the Ten Commandments on tables of stone external to God's people. And only some of them converted with new hearts. In the new covenant, he writes the Ten Commandments on the hearts of God's people. And he forms, as Christian Israel, a regenerated society with the law written on the heart. So if anybody doesn't have God's law, the Ten Commandments, written on their heart, they don't have any right to belong to the Christian church, which is Christian Israel under the New Covenant. And so God himself perpetuates. He doesn't repeal the Decalogue when he justifies sinners from every branch of the human race, every kindred, tribe, and tongue, by means of faith in Christ. Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone. It doesn't repeal the, the, the Ten Commandments, but instead he writes the Ten Commandments on the heart of people from every kindred, tribe, and tongue. So when he justifies by faith, he produces humility. When he justifies by faith Gentile and Jew and produces gospel integration. He doesn't repeal the Ten Commandments. He, re he repeals the book. And the people of God under the New Covenant are no longer responsible to keep everything written in the book as a body politic. We don't have to go through the Jewish uh, dietary codes and dress codes and ceremonial sacrifices. We don't do that. Only the general equity of those things pertains to us. So when he says, you shall not muzzle the ox, when he treads out the corn, it means that you know if somebody labors in the gospel, they should be supported. That It has a practical, general application, the general equity. But the whole book, we're not responsible to do all that anymore. That's not what's written on our hearts. But what's written on our hearts is the same abiding moral code that was written on the Ten Commandments, which was the voice of conscience. So he purifies and regenerates the hearts and souls of God's people under the new covenant by writing the law on our hearts, and that's how he perpetuates it. Not by something external to us on tables of stone, but internal, written on tables that are hearts of flesh. It's amazing. And then he says, 
in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll keep my judgments and do them. He writes the law in our hearts so we say with Paul, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. And by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, he enables us to obey in gospel obedience the law that he wrote on our hearts. We don't do it in our own strength. We don't do it to merit acceptance with God or pardon. But by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, out of renewed hearts that love God, that have the, the law of God written on our hearts, we walk in gospel evangelical obedience to the Ten Commandments, enabled to do that, by the Holy Spirit. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to keep my commandments. It doesn't mean he's going to cause us to keep the Jewish dietary codes and dress codes and Levitical sacrificial system. That's not the, the, the set of commandments he's talking about. He's talking about his moral law inscribed on the tables of stone and by the Holy Spirit living in hearts that love the law we are enabled to keep it, not sinlessly and perfectly, but evangelically and genuinely in a manner that pleases God, not to earn acceptance with God or pardon, not to earn our justification, but in order to please our Heavenly Father who justified us on the ground of Christ alone, because of grace alone, by means of faith alone. It has a perpetual role in the sanctification of believers. And finally, so you have regeneration, the Holy Spirit, and lastly, love. When Jesus was asked, Master, what's the great commandment in the law? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, Matthew 22, 36 to 40. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the scriptures, the whole law and the prophets. And then Romans 13, 8 to 10, the apostle opens this up. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loves another has fulfilled the law. Well, how does it fulfill the Ten Commandments to love people? For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it's summed up in this word, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love works no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So I thought Jesus told us we're just supposed to love each other, right? The law of Christ is the law of love. That's right. And there's absolutely no contradiction between a law of love and the Ten Commandments. Because the sum of the Ten Commandments is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love doesn't do anything wrong to his neighbor. That's why love doesn't commit adultery against his neighbor. That's why love doesn't steal. 
That's why love doesn't bear false witness against its neighbor. And that's why love doesn't covet. Coveting wrongs God because Paul says coveting is idolatry. If you love God, you don't practice idolatry. And coveting is idolatry. So the whole law is summarized in this. Love God. Love your neighbor. You love God when you honor God's being. You shall have no other gods before me. God's nature, you shall not make to you a graven image. God's name, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. God's sacred day, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Divinely ordained authority, honor your father and mother. Human life, you shall not murder. Marriage, you shall not commit adultery. Labor and property, you shall not steal. Truth, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And the human heart, you shall not covet. All of that is about loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. Which is what we're supposed to do as Christians. It's what Christ gave us an example. An example of love. So not only does justification by faith perpetuate the Decalogue and evangelism. It also perpetuates the Decalogue in the Christian life because of the new heart, regeneration, the law of God, the Decalogue written on the heart because of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and enables us to keep it because the sum of it is love to God and to our fellow man. So when we keep the Ten Commandments, what we're doing is loving people and loving God. Because that's what it is. The law, the Decalogue, is the eyes of love. It teaches us how to love. Just like it exposes sin, it expresses love. It shows us what sin is, and it shows us what love is. And it shows us what love isn't. Murdering people is not loving them. Lying about people is not loving them. Rebelling against parental authority is not loving them and loving God who instituted. And so on and so forth. Paul makes that very point. So, justification by faith establishes the Ten Commandments, both in evangelism and in the Christian life, in gospel holiness and sanctification. Those are the applications. May God be pleased to enable us to take these things to heart and live accordingly. If we do, this will keep us walking on the razor's edge, keep us from legalism and antinomianism. Two extremes that are all over the place today. It will keep us from something else that's going along today. And that is what's called moral relativism. Not only is there no such thing as truth, it's all relative. The same idea, there's no such thing as permanent right and wrong. It's all relative. That's That's not right. That's not biblical. There is such a thing as permanent right and wrong. It's the voice of conscience amplified 
codified, purified in the Ten Commandments. And justification by faith gives the Ten Commandments a perpetual role in evangelism and in gospel holiness in the Christian life. May God be pleased to write his word on our hearts. Let's pray.